0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Christ is risen, hallelujah. He is risen indeed, hallelujah. It's great to have you here this day as we celebrate. Easter has not been canceled. The resurrection is not changed uh, Nothing has actually changed that actually matters in this world in terms of your eternal destiny and where you can be with your Lord forever. No, that is still true in this day and age. Even when we are socially apart, we are connected together over 2 billion strong throughout this world celebrating today, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Thrive Community Church and our uh, time together in God's word today. Right now, we're going to be starting to read our text, which happens to be from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning with verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, following him and went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been at Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now, let's just say, for argument's sake. In the mail this next week, you received an envelope from a law firm, not Morgan and Morgan or one of the ones that you always see on TV, but a law firm that you don't recognize and yet it seems like it's a serious letter and um, it's addressed to you. Would you open it up? And if you did read it, and when you opened up that letter and it had information in it that a, Recent relative of yours had passed away and you were named the beneficiary in the will. And it is a relative distant though to you that you knew that uh, somebody had let you know had passed away. Now you might be skeptical about all of this. This sounds too good to be true. But would you just toss the letter away? Or would you at least investigate The next day, phone up the law firm to see what the real story is. You see, the offer is too great to just let it pass by. You would investigate. You would look into it. Well, the resurrection is like that. The offer is so great. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so great. And the question is, I I realize many people, Consider it a scam, like one that you would receive in the mail or one that you would receive over the phone. You might believe yourself that it's too good to be true. You might be skeptical of it. It's just a projection of what people want to believe. But I dare say, I want you to consider this. The offer is so great, so great, at least explore it, investigate, What would it hurt if you actually did explore whether the resurrection happened? You know, not just write it off, throw it away, act like, ah, it's nothing worth looking into. Now, I dare need to say this, though, too. This offer that we have in the Christian faith is much different than other religious philosophies and world religions offering some Feeling some experience, some idea that you will have some type of uh, life after death. You know, some faiths offer an escape from this material world of suffering into a realm of non being that you just become one with the universe in some way, but you personally don't exist. Or that there is some spiritual state. Some believe that your soul, eternal as it is, will always exist in a spiritual form of some type or another. But Christianity's offer of life after death is not any of these things. It is much more and much greater christianity doesn't see that this world that we live in this material world of things and ideas and people and wonder that that this creation is a problem yes it's broken it's fallen because of our sin and rebellion but in it of itself there is so much beauty in creation and so much good that is still in this world what christianity offers is not an escape to some spiritual existence but that you and I will be resurrected to a new life with a glorious body. And you will be part of a whole renewed creation that everything good that this world has in it already will become gloriously good one day. And all those things that have marred and scarred both creation in this world and our relationships will be taken away and you will live and be finally at home in a world where you've always belonged, with a God who loves you intimately and personally, and you will be at harmony with everyone and everything in all of creation, especially other human beings. That's the offer. That's the offer that Christianity has. And I'd say that offer is so great, you need to look into it. And there's really no better way to do that than starting with a text like we did in John chapter 20 today. Now, there are other texts of the New Testament. In fact, you will find that there is no such thing as a Christianity in the early church that did not talk about the resurrection and have the resurrection as a centerpiece of its faith. You can't find something stripped away of Jesus' death and resurrection in any of the primitive or or foundational documents or testimony of the early church. But this passage especially that we are looking at today is a great example of showing one of the original stories of Easter morning, and it's going to teach us three realities that you can explore even more. And that is that the resurrection itself is intensely rational, and it's deeply merciful, and it's profoundly personal. First of all, that it is intensely rational. Now you might go like, what? Yes, it is. Why do I say that? Because Mary, when she arrives at the tomb that morning, expecting to find it just as they had left it, she finds it open and empty. She assumes that somebody Rationally, she cannot think of anything else. Had stolen the body and taken it away. I appreciate that the followers of Jesus Christ don't just jump to some illogical conclusion on that first day, some fantasy wish dream immediately. But we see that they struggle with the implications of an empty tomb and they can't put it into the categories that they're thinking of. They don't jump to conclusions. So she runs back to the disciples where they are huddled together and and Peter and John decide to run and investigate for themselves. And when they run, John outruns Peter. He gets there first, but then Peter runs right into the tomb, it says. And then the text says this. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. Now, the Greek word that's used for to see what Peter did there is a fascinating word. It's actually this Greek word, theoreo. You can probably hear the English word that is uh, in our language based on it. And the word actually means to see with intense scrutiny and to look for an explanation. It is where we get the English word theory from and to theorize. So what Peter was doing is he wasn't just looking, he was intensely investigating by looking at the scene and trying to come to a logical, rational conclusion of what does this mean? Wait a minute, the cloth that Jesus laid, what? If the body was stolen, why wouldn't they steal it with the cloth and the spices? Because uh, why would they take the time to unwrap the body and leave the expensive spices behind? No robber would do this. And to have the face cloth folded neatly in place over here, that makes no sense. And if it wasn't robbers who came in to take the body, if other followers of Jesus that we don't know who they are came into this tomb somehow, they got the stone roll, how, uh, why would they disgrace the body by unwrapping it from its cloths and taking it away naked? That makes no sense. That would be totally dishonoring and shameful to the body of Jesus, the one they love. He was making deductive conclusions. Even Jesus' first disciples need evidence to believe in the resurrection. I know many modern people believe that if you're a Christian, well, you just turned off your brain and walked into a church. (laughs) That you didn't intensely look at the evidence before you You just wanted to believe what you wanted to believe because you wanted to believe it. And then you just decide this one sounds good. Let's go with this religion because it's just as good. If maybe a little better, maybe not than any other. I've got to believe in something. This one sounds good. That is not what happens. Not even Peter or John or Thomas or Mary or anyone has ever done that. Nor should you. And I would dare say, if your faith is just based on the fact that you just want to believe in something because it sounds good or if it feels good or if it's comfortable to you without any thinking or any evidence at all, that your faith will not last. It's going to fall apart in all the tough struggles that we face in this life, the ups and downs, the ins and outs. No, you need a resurrection faith that is based on rational thinking and some evidence that that is the case. And Peter and John and Mary and everyone else on that first Easter, they were not able to believe in the resurrection just simply by hearing it. They saw the evidence. And if you're going to get the most out of the resurrection, I believe you too need to see the evidence, to theorize, to deduce, to be a Sherlock Holmes and look at the evidence laid before you. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. How can I theorize like Peter did? I mean, it's 2000 years ago. What evidence do I have now? They were right there. Ah, we have a lot of historical evidence. And the first is right here in our text, it's Mary Magdalene herself. She and the other women, every one of the early texts, every one of the first accounts of that resurrection morning, have women coming to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Salome. The women are the first people to come to the tomb and be the first witnesses, the first evangelists at that tomb. And to us, eh, great, okay, it's no problem. We can easily believe that, sort of, and just pass that over. But you'd have to understand the first century culture in Palestine and the Greco-Roman world to see how at odds and how incredible having women at that tomb as the first witnesses would be. Celsus. He's an early Greek philosopher in the second century AD. He was a great intellectual enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ and of Christianity. And he wrote an entire book on uh, attacking Christianity, calling it ridiculous, calling it nonsense. And one of his great lines and his main argument for why Christianity and the resurrection make no sense is Mary Magdalene. He wrote that how would anybody believe in this? Because how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female? Now, please, I'm not agreeing with him, okay, in any form. But you have to understand how women were taken back in that day. Their status was so low, and they were not credible witnesses. And yet here, We see that it's the women who are there first. Now think that through for a moment. Do some theorizing. If you were going to invent a story, if you were going to write a fictional account, a propaganda account of the resurrection, who would you put at the scene? Wouldn't it be some, quote, credible witness that anybody would agree with across the board? Why would you ever place women as the first witnesses at the tomb unless that is exactly the way it happened? You would never have included them. And the reason that they are there first in all of the accounts actually today, though it worked against the church in the first two or three centuries, is working for us today because today it shows us that they weren't going to make things up or just make it sound good to try to win people over, but they were going to tell it like it is. Now, here's a second piece of evidence I want you to consider, and it's the fact that Christianity just exploded on the scene within the first few centuries, and like I said before, you cannot find um, and reduce Christianity to, to just a bunch of ethical principles of loving each other and all that. You always find any of the testimony, any of the early original testimony of the church includes the resurrection story as the centerpiece of what Christianity is about. And you find out overnight that these first century Jewish Christians or Jews who became Christians or followers of Jesus, these first century people who knew that you would not worship anything or anyone other than the one true God, you find them immediately bowing down and worshiping and praising and giving glory to one human being named Jesus the Messiah as the Lord of life and death. And you have to figure out how can you explain that? How does that make any sense at all? You can't explain the growth of the Christian church in the first few centuries without agreeing that the first Christians believed in this resurrection, that they had empty tomb sightings and actual visible sightings of Jesus Christ, and they believed it. N.T. Wright, who is both a great theologian and a historian of early Christianity, in his voluminous, how do you ever say that? (laughs) Voluminous work called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's huge, it's thick, it's great. It's thorough, can be much to read, but he makes this conclusion, despite the somewhat desperate attempts of many scholars over the last 200 years, not to mention critics since at least Celsus, whom I mentioned, to explain the explosive growth of Christianity apart from the resurrection, no such explanation has been found. You just can't explain it away without this belief from its foundation in the resurrection of Jesus. And he goes on to write that the disciples wouldn't make this stuff up because... Nobody would have believed it in that day and age. They were not predisposed to such a belief. Oh, everybody believed in, well, some of Jewish people believed in a resurrection at the end of the world, but not in the middle of history for one human being like Jesus Christ. And so N.T. Wright Goes on to say, nobody was expecting this kind of a thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case we have presented that the tomb plus appearances combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. You can go on and find more evidence, more deductions, for instance, every other would-be Messiah before and after Jesus who had more popularity than even Jesus did during his lifetime, who rose to some fame like someone like Simon Bar Kokhba, but then when he rebelled against Rome or had this movement and he was killed, boom, the entire, the entire movement stopped. Everybody turned around and said, oh, I guess he's not the one. No messianic movement kept going, but with Christianity. And in Christianity, we find out hundreds of people, according to the New Testament, saw Jesus physically alive after his death. And you have to understand why. You have to go like, what, how does this add up? What does this mean? And if you don't believe in the resurrection that it actually did happen, then you have to come up with another theory. And I like how Shusaka Enzo, um, a Japanese author writes it, he said, Um, If we don't believe in the resurrection, we'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind and yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. And as N.T. Wright says, no historian has really come up with a better answer. So, investigate. Search. Intensely be rational about looking at the evidence. Consider. Consider think through it. If you do, and I believe, you will start to believe that the resurrection did take place. So first of all, the resurrection is intensely rational, and secondly, it is deeply merciful. This comes in the way that how Jesus treated Mary Magdalene. Sure, Mary is searching, she is intent, she is sincere, she is heartbroken at the empty tomb. And she, in this text, is looking for some answer and yet she seems totally clueless at the same time. Her understanding of Jesus is still so small. She is looking for a dead body and a human Jesus. She cannot consider the categories before her. And Jesus could have been just totally blunt or matter of fact with her. But instead, he comes to her when she doesn't even recognize him and asks her questions. Why are you crying? Whom are you looking for? You know, he's kind of like a good counselor in this time. Many counselors have learned that when somebody is grief-stricken, heartbroken, confused about life, really anxious or upset, it's not to try to give them the answer or force it on them in any way. It won't work. But instead, to ask good questions and help them to experience and understand the answers themselves. And so Jesus here, so compassionately and wonderfully, the Lord of life, who once and for all has conquered death, who need not be bound by human convention or human limitations, who still comes up to Mary, asks a question, and then meets her at her level, finding her in her sorrow. He doesn't berate her. He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith. He speaks to her gently. And I think this story of Mary encapsulates what the Christian gospel has been all about from the New Testament and and every text across all of the Bible, that the good news of Jesus Christ is it's by grace that we are saved. He comes to Mary when Mary would have just passed by and never found him. At a point, no person can come to Jesus Christ and understand the resurrection, but he makes it known to us. And he comes, of all people, to Mary as the first. Now, you might go like, wait, well, Mary Magdalene, we've heard a lot of stories about her. The one that we do know that is true is from Luke chapter 8, that she was someone from whom seven demons had gone out. Okay, so in other words, she was a reformed demoniac, Okay, someone who had been possessed by demons. And if you understand anything in the New Testament times about someone who might be possessed by demons is that they are under control of these powers that they cannot control. And they cry out and they lash out and they might even self-mutilate and they are totally ostracized from society and they are considered out of their minds. And many people think that they deserved it for some reason and they did something uh, because of it. And Jesus Christ had cast those demons out of her, and he chooses her of all people. He doesn't pass over to Peter or John or the rest of the disciples, but he chooses her. A woman, not a man, a reformed demoniac, not like a seminary graduate, to be his witness. That's the mercy of the gospel. Jesus is demonstrating that salvation is not based on your talent, your intellect, your good works, your morality. It's all by his grace. All by his grace. So it's intensely rational. It's deeply merciful. And finally, it's profoundly personal. Again, look at how Jesus reveals himself to Mary. It's not the way kind of like a Superman in the movies would do it, coming down with a jetliner in his hand, saving the day, just in time for the applause of all the crowds and the six o'clock news filming it to show later as evidence. And Jesus, when he does come to Mary, doesn't say, hey, it's me. No, instead, he speaks her name. He involves her in it. He calls her by name and knows her. He doesn't say Ms. Magdalene. He says Mary, her personal name. The God of life, the Lord of the resurrection, speaks her personal name. And in doing it, he is telling us that he is not the dead founder of some ethical religion that you learn and know by following rules but that he is saying, I am the living savior who is alive now with whom you can have a personal relationship with. And when you know me, you will start to know and discover yourself. When I call your name, when you are mine and I am yours, then you will know who you are and what your life is all about and the direction it will go. You know, what's so amazing in our culture. We are so, so, so wrapped up in finding our identity. Identity questions are all over the place. And people are trying to discover who they are and what their life is supposed to be about. And you know, the one answer, the default answer in our society is... Figure it out from within. Search through all of the chaos of all these different emotions and thoughts and feelings. Maybe throw in a few personality inventories to make it feel more scientific. But discover self-discovery to find yourself and then live to express whatever the passions you have in this life are. And I'm going to tell you that that just ain't going to work. Why? because you were not made to be self-contained and to just be wrapped up and centered on yourself. You were made for a relationship with someone who has loved you from eternity. You have been made to be truly relational. You need someone who will love you whom you can love, someone who gives you the honor of a relationship with. And Jesus is telling us in this situation, you will know who you are when you get to know me. And our relationship will define everything. That's when you have a stable identity and know your future. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate person in the universe who has loved you at great personal cost, pouring out my very life for you so that I can speak your name. I want to be known by you intimately. And when you know me, you will get to know yourself. You connect with me as your risen Lord and you will find the deepest secrets of your life. And you might say that's easy for Mary because she was right there. But notice how he says in this text as well, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to my father. And he's really pointing to the fact that what he's going to do in his ascension is he's going to be sending his Holy Spirit to us So that there will be no time, no place, no space, no situation that can ever separate us from God's love. And he will send that Holy Spirit and we can have an even more intimate relationship than Mary even had that day. Now, I haven't spoken much about COVID-19 at all and how it's been keeping us physically apart at this point in time. But I want to tell you that it's not keeping God's presence away from you this day by any means, no. I pray this Easter that it will be a day where you are looking intentionally, rationally at what happened, what has been claimed to happen 2,000 years ago. That you will see how deeply merciful your God is And how amazingly personal, Jesus Christ, as he calls you right now by name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, we are amazed at you. I pray right now for those who in this congregation or out here um, across this country who are watching right now, who are part of this worship service, that you have worked through your word, Holy Spirit, that you have worked in such a way that you have called them personally by name and they are responding right now to your gospel. I pray, Lord, that you help them connect to you and connect to us. We pray, Lord, that you would take away any um, obstacles in their mind that might get in the way of what they believe and why they just, any emotional, heartache right now um, that you want to heal and melt away so that they understand your mercy even greater and any um, distance that might be there. Instead, Lord, that we are open and vulnerable to you and we personally receive you for who you are this day. We thank you for all of these things, Lord Jesus, and I thank you for the witness of Thrive Community Church and its many members and the testimony that we can give and we do give to each other in encouragement. So bless us now as we continue our worship, Lord Jesus, and with the testimony of many of your people to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to how important it is and the difference it's making. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.